you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi everyone, welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. We're your hosts, Elizabeth Bonking And Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we're a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to give back to Edmonton's community. On this podcast, we share stories from spaces where endowments and communities intersect, because it's good to be well endowed. So we made it to the new year. It's 2019, and we have a few changes to share with you. That's right. For example, we have a new space on Facebook where you can visit the show and share your thoughts. And we're planning to up our game this year. So over the last two years, we have been producing about an episode a month, or at least one episode a month. But moving into 2019, uh, we're going to go to bi-weekly, at least, sometimes more. Depends on how many stories come out of the woodwork, which they always seem to do. And we are always panicking at the last minute to find a place to fit them in. But that's a nice problem to have. So you will be getting more well-endowed stories uh, in 2019. And we're also hoping to take you out of the studio more this year and provide you with some more immersive stories and more sort of documentary style stuff. So that is going to be really exciting. Well, that sounds a little bit like what we have planned for today's show. So, Andrew, I heard that you were cooking up a storm with John Hall and Twyla Campbell. But I see the microphones made it safely home. How'd it go? It went very well. As you mentioned, I caught up with John Hall and CBC's restaurant reviewer Twyla Campbell to chat about their newly released book, Maps, Markets and Matzo Ball Soup, The Inspiring Life of Chef Gail Hall. Gail was the very definition of a community builder, and proceeds from the new book are going toward the Chef Gail Endowment Fund here at Edmonton Community Foundation. John established the fund as a way to honor Gail's memory. Grants from the fund will continue her community work by supporting young chefs, providing things like food education to children and low-income mothers. Gail became a Red Seal chef at the age of 60 and was a tireless advocate of local food producers through her catering company, Gourmet Goodies, and as a regular cooking personality on radio and television. She was an avid food writer and helped give Twyla Campbell her start as CBC's restaurant reviewer. This made Twyla the perfect fit to write Maps, Markets, and Matzo Ball Soup, which is one part biography and one part cookbook. So we figured it would be a great idea to cook a few recipes from the book while we chatted about Gail, who passed away in 2016 after living with breast cancer for several years. This idea of cooking as a way to remember her got me thinking about what a person's legacy means. Now if you think back, 2016 was a pretty heavy year for losing role models, including people like Carrie Fisher, Prince, David Bowie, Leonard Cohen, Alan Rickman, Muhammad Ali, and here in Edmonton, Gail Hall. Gail touched so many lives, and there are a lot of people feeling the need to remain connected with her memory. For our musical and film heroes, we can visit them with the click of a button on the streaming service of your choice. But when the cooks in our lives pass away, we're offered a truly special opportunity to reconnect with them through their food. Food is communal and sensory in ways that music and film are not. It can be the feel of your great-great-uncle's chef knife slicing through fresh produce from the farmer's market. It's the smell of delicious things sizzling in your grandmother's cast-iron skillet. It's the sound of conversation bubbling between the clink of cutlery and glasses. And it's taste. It's myriad flavors that transport you to myriad moments with the people you love. So here is me meeting up with John and Twyla at Twyla's Condo to chat about the book, Gail's Life, and to cook a couple of the recipes that have some very fun stories behind them. 
Also, just a heads up that if you aren't hungry now, you will be by the end of this story, and that you'll be hearing some sizzling kitchen sounds in the background as we discuss the finer details of chicken cacciatore, panzanella salad, food tours around the world, and how to throw a proper dinner party. Bon appetit. Hello. Hi, Twyla. It's Andrew. Hi, Andrew. I'll buzz you in and then come up to the 10th floor. Okay, thank you. We kind of... Hi. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Good. Who's your crew? Uh, it's just me. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> but where's the gaffer, the gopher? It's the, the one-man oh, show today. I thought it was going to be like a big crew or something. <laughs> 10, 12 people. We're so dis- when I walk into Twyla's condo, all the ingredients are laid out in her immaculate kitchen. A pile of chicken thighs and legs are waiting to be dredged in flour before going into the Dutch oven on the stove for the cacciatore. There's day-old bread soaking in a bowl of water for the panzanella. And all of the herbs, spices, tomato paste, garlic, onions, and other ingredients are prepped and ready for action. But before we start cooking, our conversation opens with Twyla telling us about her relationship with Gail. It was at a slow food barbecue, a beer and boar event um, held on the east side there at Alley Cat Brewery in their parking lot. And it was a... um, just a a coming together of foodies uh, to enjoy locally raised foods prepared by people in the food communities and Gail was one of the people cooking and I went up to the table to get some food and and she was I think she was refilling a bowl of something or other and she had her big bowl and a spoon and she was talking and she talks with her hands and I think there was ingredients flying everywhere and she was just so passionate when she was explaining where the food came from and, and how it was grown and all that kind of stuff, I thought, who is this fireball? She is. She got you so energized. And I thought, I love everything about this event, this woman, what I'm hearing. And so then I joined Slow Food too. And we just became friends. We ended up um, on a few of the same food panels uh, over the next decade kind of thing. And uh, we... We wrote for Avenue about food. We we judged events. We uh, yeah. She actually, when she was working for CBC as a food columnist there, um, they asked her who they should speak to. Um, they wanted to have a food blogger come on, on the air and, and talk about food blogging. And she said, oh, there's you know this girl Twyla Campbell. She's got a food blog, and she she probably you know be willing to speak to you. And so I went on and I talked about food blogging, and uh, they called me the next day or maybe even later that afternoon now, and, and um, said that went really well and invited me to do the restaurant reviews from there on in. So right. it's because of Gail that I'm still with CBC doing the restaurant reviews. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the background of, of the book. Well, Gail always wanted to write a book, but never, never had time. She was way too busy doing other things. And so um, when she passed away, um, uh, there was such an outpouring from the community wanting to know more and uh, we, I think we needed to sort of capture that story. And so um, I invited Twyla to write the book. Uh, and it's a memoir with recipes. So uh, people seem to think it's a, a recipe book, but really it's a memoir. And uh, because cooking was such a big part of her life, we had to have recipes in it. And all 30 recipes have a story attached to them. What are we going to be making here today? Uh, we're going to make panzanella. That's a, a salad, a bread salad from Italy. And I attended a couple of cooking courses at Gail's place in the loft. And uh, this is where I first tasted panzanella was in one of those classes at uh, her loft. And I 
just remember being so impacted by the salad because I knew my mom would love it because it uses day old bread or old bread. And it's, it's really, I love that grassroots peasant kind of food where you don't throw away tomatoes that are getting too soft or, you know, a little bit banged up and you don't throw away old bread and you use everything from your garden. And it's a very, you know, um, you don't have to spend a lot to get this beautiful dish. And in fact, you're using up ingredients that might be headed for the bin. So I love that rustic aspect to the salad. Uh, so we're making that and then we're gonna make uh, chicken cacciatore. And this too is a dish that I learned uh, to cook at Gail's Loft, but I had made it uh, for my family when I started cooking for my family when I was nine. It was one of the first dishes that I ever learned to make. And so to me, it really has deep roots in, in growing up and feeding my family. And I, I'm really connected to chicken cacciatore, but it kind of fell out of favor for quite a few years in my, in my cooking repertoire because I was exploring new foods and I was cooking all different cultures of foods. And I kind of forgot about chicken cacciatore until I had it at Gail's. And then I thought, I just love this dish so much and I miss making it. So that's why I've chosen those because they're extremely special to me. And I just feel um, super connected to Gail when I cook either of those or when I eat either of those. Yeah, and John, uh, so the kitchen cacciatore recipe, the story behind it in the book, is sort of tied into Gail's catering career. It's a really fun chapter to read because it actually gets into the, the challenges, let's say. So maybe you could tell us uh, about how Gail came into these sort of tight spots and how she was able to right the ship, so to speak. I think, sorry, John. Um, I think one of the stories that really made me just envision Gail and how exasperated and and terrified she must have felt was that one time when she was doing a catering job for the faculty the u of a one of the u of a faculties but there was two faculties that had very similar names and two locations and she took her hundreds of canapes whatever to the one the the one place where she thought the faculty was having their party and there was no party happening there was just a security guard there saying um no not you're not coming in there's no party happening and this was before cell phones this was before all modern technology she had no way to contact the people and so she went back to her place and she she ran in the door and she saw the light flashing on the answer machine and it was her the client and the client just said hey Gail uh, we're here just waiting for you so see you soon and hung up and it's like but where are you so she, she had no way of contacting these people and she ended up, as she ended up delivering those canapes to the youth emergency shelter, I believe, so that at least the food went somewhere. Right. But that was a big order and she felt, she felt foolish. She felt like she let them down. She felt this is a waste. This is money out of my pocket. So from that point on, she made sure that you had backup phone numbers, you had double check the address, you had person to contact and all that kind of stuff. So it, it made her change her business. Uh, so Twyla, maybe you can just walk us through uh, where you're at with the chicken cacciatore at the moment here. Yeah, um, the recipe calls for a whole chicken cut up. Um, I like using thighs and legs. So this is, I think, when you've been cooking for a while, you you know what you can substitute or, you know, when if you're at ease in your kitchen. So 
Gail always said to use bone in chicken and leave the skin on where you can because that keeps the juice in and um, meat that's on the bone stays juicier too. So I use legs uh, attached to the thigh, but then I cut them because you're just going to save some money when you have to do the work yourself of cutting up. And uh, we've coated it uh, in a bit of flour and we're frying it, we're browning it in the pan, and then we're going to to take that chicken out, add our um, onions and garlic and our, our herbs, and then we're gonna put the chicken back in and it's gonna cook on the stove for about an hour and a half or so. Um, and in the, while that's happening, we're gonna move on to the salad. John, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the cooking tour side of things that you and Gail were organizing. Do you recall which trip it was that Panzanella sort of came into the picture for you? I assume it was one of the Italian trips. And the whole point of the tours was to go to the destination and learn from the local chefs so that you were, you were experiencing the recipes, not interpreted through somebody's concept, but getting it directly from the, the chefs that originated it. So, for example, when we went to Louisiana, we didn't go to New Orleans because New Orleans is a cultural scene unto itself where it's evolved in a, in a way that's, that's different from the, the Creole and and Cajun foods, we went to Baton Rouge, which gets 100,000 visitors a year and not 6 million visitors. And we talked to the, the local chefs who were doing it the way it had been done, right? And we got the original, the original recipes and went to the, the, um, the authentic uh, restaurants to, uh, to get the recipes the way they were done and experiencing it. And then we went to New Orleans just for a, a day, just to sort of taste it and see that it was slightly different. But we tried very much to get out into the local kitchens and the local experts and bring back recipes that were authentic to the region. And, and we could bring them back to Edmonton in the way they were originally done. As the chicken finishes browning, Twyla removes the legs and thighs from the Dutch oven and sets them aside. She tosses in onions and garlic and begins preparing the sauce for the cacciatore. It's a tomato-based sauce made from chicken stock, white wine, tomato paste, and seasonings including chopped thyme, basil, marjoram, oregano, and parsley. This sauce is going to deglaze the pan. It's going to lift and incorporate all of the tasty brown bits of chicken, flour, garlic, and onion from the Dutch oven and build that flavor of the dish like it's nobody's business. Twyla adds the chicken back to the pan with the sauce. She brings it up to a boil and then down to a simmer, and we wait for the meat to begin separating from the bone. That's a good way to tell when the chicken's done. You can also jab a thermometer into the thickest part of the pieces, and when it reads 165 degrees Fahrenheit, you're pretty much good to go. While all this is going on, the conversation shifts to where Twyla and Gail's culinary styles rest on the spectrum between rustic and haute cuisine. Um, I, uh, I am more of a rustic cook, I guess you'd say. If, if something has to be, if herbs have to be cut fine or minced fine or whatever, I, I take the Jamie Oliver approach. I, right, more I, Jamie Oliver yeah. than Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> the technique, you know, you can ease up a little bit. But uh, Where did Gail sort of fit on that spectrum? Well, she uh, learned to cook um, at the hands of a, I guess, a, a strict mother. So her technique was, was quite proper. Um, and then she, she passed her Red Seal certification when she was 60. So she had to, you know, you can't do that um, by cooking the way I cook, that's for sure. Right, so right. yeah, she was a, a fine mincer and a dicer and a, had great knife skills and 
all the kind of stuff. She was no slouch in the kitchen, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But Gail insisted that the cooking didn't have to be hard. I mean, yeah. she did simple recipes that were wholesome. She, she really focused on local foods, um, organic foods, um, where she knew the producer, and um, simple methodologies. There was nothing, nothing complicated. It might be a long recipe. This, this cacciatore recipe, yeah. recipe has 20-some ingredients, but they're, they're quite simple, straightforward, uh, easily, easily accessible. And, um, yeah, remember this was a dish that I was cooking when I was nine and it wasn't that much different than the one Gail has. So if a nine-year-old can handle this and a nine-year-old could certainly handle the book, the recipe that Gail has here. Absolutely. It's not difficult. What was Gail like in the kitchen? Uh, how would you describe her oh. uh, cooking style? <laughs> uh, she was, she was like a, she was like a mad conductor. I think, you know, I can just see her with her head down and her arms going and, and stirring and cutting and, and just talking about, uh, she'd, she'd be going through the steps of a recipe and then she'd talk about tips on how to peel garlic and then, you know, what kind of garlic to look for in the store and ways to get around, you know, cutting a lot of onions or she was always full of these little tips and tricks and, and what she thought was a good deal or what you should look for. She was, she was a walking encyclopedia when it came to to food um, and she just had little stories she would get people to talk about their their food memories get people to share stories because I think that was just as important to Gail as anything was um, listening to how people connected with food or getting to them engaged in that manner because cooking is it, what she did was more than just cooking there was way more than feeding people it was everything that came with it. It was smelling the product, it was going to the market, it was touching it, it was talking to the farmer. So um, she was just very engaging. Um, but when she was in the kitchen, I had, she was just like this maestro conductor. But also setting a gorgeous table and, and having the right dishes and the right centerpieces and all of that sort of thing. Sometimes in a cooking class, a four-hour cooking class, about 60 minutes in, I'd go, are we going to be cooking today? Because she'd, be, <laughs> because she'd start telling stories, right? And yeah. then she'd run out of time. And, um, and people were engaged with that. They, they loved that. And uh, she, um, she told stories about where she got the recipe and how she'd experienced it and fed off other people's experiences. And sometimes they would ask a, a detailed technical question that we hadn't encountered before. And so Gail would sort of um, look at me and I'd rush over to the computer and look it up and then bring back a bring back um, the answer to the question. Uh, thank you, Mr. Google. And, uh, and then we'd move on, right? But, um, or she'd want to be technically correct, so she'd go get a reference book and we'd look it up to make sure that we were absolutely correct around the, the answer. But um, yeah, she, did, you know, she just had this, as Twana said, this encyclopedic knowledge of food and where it came from and where the food was grown and who produced it and why they produced it and the story about how they came to this country and why they were cooking the food that way. And um, because she'd been to the farms, she went to the farms, she went to the producers, she um, met them at the market, she talked to them and, um, and she knew all about it. And that was, that's part of it, right? It's not just, this is an apple, but this is a, an apple that was developed out of the University of Saskatoon and it's growing here and there's only one person in Alberta that grows it and, and the harvest is only two weeks in August and you've got to get them here or <laughs> whatever. She, she, cause she'd been out to visit the farmer who'd grown it, right? And um, bringing it back. So <clears throat> it was pretty, 
pretty amazing. Yes. Uh, okay, so Twyla, you have uh, something going on in a nice big um, metal bowl here with the <laughs> bread, um, and you're wringing the bread out. What did you put in there uh, to rehydrate that day-old uh, bread? Yeah, this is kind of an odd step in, in this panzanella salad, and I don't remember this when I first made it with Gail back in the early 2000s. But anyway, you'll find different methods for making panzanella, and some call to... Well, they, they should all call for using day-old, at least day-old bread. It's, anyway, so this recipe calls to, to soak the bread in water. And you think, how is that going to work? I don't know. So anyways, yeah, you just cover it with uh, enough water to make it a little soggy. And then you let that sit for, in here it's 10 minutes. And online, I was researching, it can be up to two or three or four hours. But anyways, all you have to do then later is squeeze out the water that you initially put in and... And then you'll get these big clumps of bread that you're going to end up tearing into smaller bits and bites because right now they're about the size of a, an apple. Uh, so, John, can you tell us a little bit about the dinner parties that you would uh, throw with Gail? Well, Gail did a lot of entertaining because every cooking class um, ended with dinner, right? And we'd sit around the table and it was, it was like a party because people had all worked together they got to know each other over the last two or three hours and the wine was flowing and, and the table was gorgeous and we had a big round tabletop that would seat 10 people and there would be flowers in the middle of the table that Gail had arranged and a beautiful tablecloth and we're using, we're using the silverware, the family silverware and, and, um, and uh, all the right glasses and lots of forks and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and people were, were prepared to sit down like your family does at Christmas, right? They knew each other and they were ready for a good meal and they knew exactly what they were getting because they'd been involved in the preparation. And so conversation would flow and, and there'd be lots of questions and more training and teaching and, um, and, and people didn't want to go home, right? Four, four <laughs> or five hours later, I'm sort of going, I'm going to put the, I'm going to put the hide a bed down now and uh, the Murphy bed and I'm going to go to bed. So just close the door when you leave. <laughs> but um, so that carried on to, to, to parties as well um, where Gail would, would ask people to bring um, potluck. Everybody shared in the cooking because they brought something from home. And, uh, and we put it out on the table. So when we came back from a tour, two or three weeks after the tour, we'd all get back together for a party on Sunday afternoon and everybody would bring a dish that reminded them of the tour, right? So we never knew what was coming, but they'd all taken a recipe and remade it and brought it to the party and um, <clears throat> laid it out on the table and people could tell the stories of their dish. And uh, nobody was um, was overly pressured um, because everybody brought a, a dish and, and, you know, it's easy. And so um, the whole idea of doing a potluck just makes it easy. The host can concentrate on making the setting beautiful and making sure that all the accoutrements are there. And then the people that are coming can, can share their skills as well. It's those little touches that made uh, getting together with her, with you guys, so special because you just felt like you felt like there was a lot of thought and effort that went into receiving you as a guest. I mean, how special is that, right? Mm. Um, you just, you felt welcomed and it was a special deal to go there. Uh, the little things like, I remember seeing her, her cheese tray for the first time and it was just, I think, um, I came over to your place, we were on our way out to supper down the street, probably going to Sofra and stop in for a drink first and there's this 
cheese tray and it's got dried fruit on it. It's the first time I'd ever see dried fruit on a cheese tray. And then this little pot of honey on, and she would tell us all about the cheeses or she told, you know, this cheese comes from this farm in Southern Alberta and this is here. And why would you put honey on cheese? This is amazing. And there's nuts on this plate. It was just so crazy different and it took such little effort, but the impact was huge. Huge, yeah. yeah. All right, so what are you tasting right now? Uh, I'm tasting the polenta and um, not so much for flavor because all polenta is is uh, the cornmeal, corn flour, and water. You can cook it in water or broth or even milk. Um, I'm tasting it to see if it's soft enough, if it's, if it's done. A chef in Italy once told me that you don't cook just by by one sense. You cook by all the senses. Um, you cook by sight, by smell, by sound even. You can tell when something is done or changing in its, uh, in its doneness by how it sounds in the pan or, or, or however you're cooking it. Um, by all the senses, so sight, sound, taste, texture, all that kind of stuff, uh, how it sounds. So with polenta, it has to cook for about half an hour. It has to cook slowly. And I think just by how it, the texture was that I tasted and seeing it in the pan here, I think we probably have about another 10 minutes to go um, before it's able to be served. And then I'll just add some butter to it to make it a little bit more creamy and uh, some salt. And that's all. Polenta is so easy. It's a great, great uh, medium to have for a, a saucy dish like this. Like, yeah. yeah. And what consistency should polenta be? Well, for how we want to serve it with a chicken cacciatoria, it should be like a runnier mashed potato, I guess. Um, so right now, it's you can see it's too soupy, too runny. So we want it to thicken up a bit. All right. And so what is left to do with the salad and the chicken? Not much. The chicken is cooking and it's been uh, cooking on top of the stove for about an hour. I checked it again by how it feels. You can see if the if the meat is coming off the bone and it's getting close. So it'll it'll need another 10 minutes, about the same time as the polenta. And the salad is almost ready to go. I just have to tear the, the bread up now and put it into the bowl with the tomatoes and the onions and then put the dressing on. Um, I don't want to do it too soon because if I if I do too soon, then the bread will become too soggy because it's become gonna come wet again. Right. So we can do that at the last minute. Excellent. And can you just walk us through the dressing for the salad again? Red yeah, wine vinegar. Super, super simple. Oil and vinegar, and that's an olive oil in this case, and red wine vinegar, salt and pepper. That is it. Uh, so who's in charge of wine pairings for uh, some of these dinner parties? <laughs> well, Gail had experts that she would consult, and um, but she, you know, she became quite skilled at, at it as well, and. She, um, it would take two or three days of shopping before a cooking class or something. And she had some favorite wines that she served. And when we did a cooking class, we go through six different wines, um, uh, as the, uh, as the cooking class progressed, you know, from a sipping wine at the beginning, something light and simple to something red and darker on, on, on dinner, and then maybe finishing off with a dessert wine or something at the end of it. So. Um, but you poured the wines, John. You were the wine pourer. Yeah, and I just I poured the wines. I mean, that doesn't take very much expertise, <laughs> but I made sure that the glasses were always full and, and uh, that the next bottle was ready to go and, um, and just facilitated the class so that Gail could 
continue to tell the stories. And, and she really supported um, Okanagan wines or the Canadian wine yeah. um, industry. So, and that just tied in with everything else that Gail believed in was that we have a a country and a, a province where we have the most amazing products being grown and we have a world-class wine region not just in the Okanagan but in other areas of Canada so why wouldn't we support that it makes no sense to to not support that you know so I really appreciate that about Gail was um, she was a a cheerleader for local like nobody else in the city and still nobody else nobody has filled those shoes uh, so uh, there's a story in the book that sort of I think the moral of the story is that you can't always judge a wine by its bottle. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that trip to Tuscany with one of the cooking tours, um, where uh, the wine came out in some interesting containers that might have uh, had people looking at it a little bit sideways at first? Well, we we'd done a cooking class in the restaurant, and um, so after the class was over, they had to turn the, the restaurant around to serve lunch. And so we had a half an hour, 45 minutes before, uh, before lunch. And so the uh, chef said, go down this road to my, to my house and you can go in the backyard and, and, uh, and we'll serve you some wine there. So we walked down the cobbled, cobbled lane and we went to her yard and she was on the top of the valley and you could see the valley out laying out ahead of us, a beautiful backyard. And, <clears throat> and her husband went to the garden shed at the bottom of the, uh, bottom of the um, yard and opened the doors and inside was a 500 liter wine barrel, a cuvee. And he decanted two jugs of, two jugs of red wine out of this uh, cuvee and then poured it out of the jugs into our glasses. And everybody's going, oh my God, you know, wine, doesn't, wine comes in bottles. It doesn't come in jugs or plastic bottles. But Gail was really worried. I mean, she was a little upset, right? Because yeah. this is not the experience that she thought they had you know, arranged or booked for or paid for. And, you know, what kind of wine can come out of plastic jugs? I mean, really? This is some guy's homemade wine. Well, <laughs> this is an Italian restaurateur's homemade wine. As it turns out, yes, the wine was quite remarkable, wasn't it? And you're drinking the wine um, in the place where it was made, right? It was right there. So the terroir's right and the weather's right and the smells are right. And, and it, it was just a whole experience. You know, wine is not just the what you drink, but how you experience it. And, and it was really, really fantastic. Okay, so Twyla, what wine would you recommend for the dishes that uh, we're making today? Oh, let's see. Well, um, a white I would go with would probably be a Pinot Grigio, uh, an Italian white of some sorts. Um, a Pinot Noir would also go because there's a, you know, it's a medium body dish, I guess, uh, the, with the chicken. So... Um, Pinot Noir would work, uh, a light Italian, even like a Chianti right from Tuscany would, would also be a good idea. Um, it always makes sense that when you're, whatever dish you're cooking, that the wine coming from that same country would be a great idea because terroir is, you know, a thing and it's important and it just makes sense to keep them together. So yeah, but the main thing to remember when you're drinking wine is to drink something that you like. And that's as snobby as it needs to get. As long as you like it, it's a good wine. Well, I like this one. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much to John Hall and Twyla Campbell for inviting us into the kitchen to remember Gail through her wonderful recipes. If you'd like to support the Chef Gail Fund, you can purchase a copy of Maps, Markets, and Matzo Ball Soup right here at the ECF offices. 
You can find us at 9910-103 Street, and we accept cash or credit card. And you can find the book at various local bookstores around the city. You can find a list of locations in our show notes at thewellendowedpodcast.com, because who doesn't like supporting local shops? And speaking of supporting local producers, do you know what's great about being an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network? Yep, it's getting to hear of all the great shows that are produced right here in Alberta. And I've been listening to Repodcasting with Janet and Lucia, a good fun podcast where you get to reimagine some of your favorite movies with new cast members. When you really love a movie, but you don't particularly love the actors or actresses that are in these, this podcast allows you to reimagine it with your favorite actors. For all the film buffs, this is also a fun way to enjoy your favorite movie. For me, I really thought this was a lot of fun because um, I often talk about the movie of my life and who would play different characters in my life. So this is sort of a takeoff of that, I think. This is one of the, the fun ways to take this, this sort of fantasy life a little bit step further. And it's a good fun looking at all the favorite movies that are coming up, particularly with this last one, where they talked about Jim Carrey's The Grinch. So who would play you in the movie of your life? See, I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> I have an answer for everyone else, but not for me. Well, it depends on what age it is. I always thought, you know, maybe Kathleen Turner. You never know. It depends on somebody younger. Maybe uh, Rebel Wilson. Who knows? <laughs> Kathleen Turner is awesome. Who would play me in a movie of my life? Oh, probably, um, what is his name? From Bill and Ted. Keanu Reeves? Yes. Whoa. I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> You can find Repodcasting on the Alberta Podcast Network on the CKUA radio app or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. We also have a link to the show in our notes. That sounds like a great show. I'm definitely going to check that out. Also, I'm going to start writing the movie of my life starring (laughs) Keanu Reeves. All right, moving along. There's just one more thing we want to make sure you know about before the end of the show here. At ECF, we have a special set of grants just for young Edmontonians. In fact, it's called Young Edmonton Grants. So if you know someone between the ages of 13 and 24, or maybe you are that someone, be sure to check out our Young Edmonton Grants program at ecfoundation.org. The next deadline to apply is February 15th. And we'll be sure to have the link in our show notes too. Also, if you want to read up on a cool grant that we provided through the YEG program, uh, in our most recent issue of Legacy in Action magazine, uh, we have this great piece about this group of kids who received, I believe it was $3,000 to buy a whole bunch of components to build competitive robots. So they uh, entered all of these uh, competitions, uh, and this was about two or three years ago. And then they came back and applied for another uh, Young Edmonton grant. And this time they're using the money to take what they have learned in that process and go into other communities to teach other young kids how to build robots. So Highly recommend checking that out. Uh, The digital version of the story is on our website as well at ecfoundation.org, and you can find it in our blog section. Uh, But very cool program. Always like the funnest projects come out of there. So competitive robot. I have this thing in my mind about killer robots. What's a competitive robot? Well, I don't think these are quite weapons-grade robots, but they kind of look like something that you would build using... Uh, sort of like a cross between Lego and, I don't know if you remember, uh, Constructs. There's this other like 80s toy. They look like a lot of fun. And what they do is they build these robots to spec to complete certain challenges. So I'm not exactly sure how the scoring <laughs> all works, but uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the show. And thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you have an extra minute, please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, as we mentioned earlier in the show. Thanks for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. Until next time. 
The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.